Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 406. This uh, program is dedicated in merit of the engagement of Lani uh, Altes and Mendel Magalnik, Mazel Tov to uh, their parents, grandparents, dedicated by Pinchas Tadras Ben Miriam and Sarah Bas Rachel Altes. So when their week of Pasha Shlach, which is the next chapter, the fourth chapter, in the book of Numbers, the fourth book of Bamidbar, which follows the previous chapters, which followed Matan Terah. So we will begin with talking about the chapter, as well as some other very timely and some sensitive topics, some follow-up as well. This is a good opportunity for those that are familiar with the program or for those that are new to it, I welcome you. Please go to chsidasupply.com. We have an entire dedicated site just to this program and related derivative programs where you can submit anonymously, completely anonymously, any question. Nothing is taboo. Everything is acceptable at You can also find all the archives of previous programs as well as other resources and materials on Chassidus. I teach a morning, every morning, a daily Ayin Beis class. That's in the Hemshech Tofresh Ayin Beis of the Rebbe Rashab, the magnum opus, the Mount Everest of all Hasidus and all Kabbalah, maybe, you can even say. So you can join us as well. All the information is there on the site, as well, as I said, of other resources. Okay, so with that, let's jump right in. This chapter is a very interesting one, also one of the controversial chapters where Moshe Rabbeinu, is, uh, as they prepare to enter the Promised Land, as the Ramban explains, Nachmanides explains, Moshe Rabbeinu was told by God, send scouts. Because that's the way, even though they were blessed with God's strength and God's promise to go into the promised land, but you have to do everything you can, naturally. And one of the things you do is you scout out the land. There were people living there who would not easily accede, accede the land to the Jewish people, even though it belonged to them, because the Jews had already left hundreds of years ago after Jacob came down with his, with his 70 souls to Egypt and then began the long, arduous and horrible bondage and slavery. So, the, so there would be battles to be fought to enter and to conquer the Promised Land. So Moshe sends, God tells him to send scouts. The scouts' intention, the purpose of this mission was to come back and say, what's the best way, as the Ramban explains, what's the best way to enter? Where are there strongholds? Where are there easier places to... Uh, access the new land that they were entering, etc., etc. Unfortunately, they come back with a, a, and take upon themselves another mission. Not how to enter the land, but whether to enter the land. And they determine that the land is too powerful for us. The people there, the land, it's a, it's a land that will consume its inhabitants. And they basically slander they slander the land, the land, the promised land. And as such caused the entire Jewish people to grieve and mourn. And this was, of course, a terrible crime because it was challenging God's very promise. God said you could enter the land. Like Kolov and Yeshua were the two of the scouts that said, no, we can conquer the land. And we have God's promises. But due to this, due to this terrible sin, the Jewish people could not enter the promised land. So, of course, so many questions are asked. Why then did Moshe send them? What kind of people were they? We know that Rashi says, at the time they were sent, they were k'sherim. They were not just kosher, they were not just appropriate, they were the best of the best. They were the leaders of each tribe. So what went wrong? And we see that Joshua later would send scouts again. We say it in Naftar. And Moshe also sent scouts in Pashachukas. So we see the concept of sending scouts is not the bad thing. Well, their great mistake was, as Chassidus explains, that they said it's too materialistic, this world. Living in the wilderness, where we're protected by the clouds, of, the clouds of glory, and we get bread from heaven and water from the rock. We can sit and study Torah and serve God. They wanted to remain in that spiritual oasis. So it was actually coming from a good intention. The big mistake was, no one asked you that question. Moshe sent you to figure out how to enter the land, how to conquer it, how to transform the material world into a home for God. Not whether. 
which is a fundamental difference. In life, we will all face challenges. And many times it will feel like the land consumes its inhabitants. Just enter the marketplace, the stock market, the business world. There's corruption. There's the challenges, the competition, the anguish. It all can be very distracting and antithetical to serving God. But that's not the question. God said, I want you to go into a material world. And your challenge is how to conquer it, not whether to conquer it. That's lesson number one. Moshe Rabbeinu says, Shlach lecha. Why didn't Hashem just say, send scouts? Why should you send Ledaitacha? Because it has to come from below. It has to be through our initiative. It's a partnership. God makes the promise, gives us the resources, but now we have to implement it. So you could say, Moshe should have sensed just from that alone that there's a problem. Why is God saying, do it, Ledaitacha? In other words, if you want to do it, do it. If you don't want to, don't do it. So it's interesting, it was a command, but the command is to do it at your initiative. Because Moshe Rabbeinu understood that the purpose, like we discussed last week, is that you need to have your effort involved. That itself is the command, that you're sent to this world, you're given the resources, but you need to now actualize it. Now, is there a risk? Yes, there was a risk. You see what happened. But it's still worth the risk, because that's what life is about. We're given free will, and we're expected, and we're given a vote of confidence. Like we say in the beginning, in Tanya he brings from the Gemara Nida, that when a soul comes to this world, it's a very challenging world. It's a world that consumes its inhabitants. Materialism can be extremely challenging. Just look around. And yet, we're given an oath, and also comes from the word visavota, we're sated, we're fed, we're downloaded. Embedded within us are all the resources we will need to be righteous and not to be wicked, to be selfless and transcendent and serve a higher purpose and not just to serve yourself. So that's what life is about. Challenges, but all the strengths necessary to deal with every challenge. And recognizing that you have to take a, play a role. You have to take initiative. So that's a general lesson. In that specifically, let's read one of the questions I received. Why were scouts sent if God promised us he would give us the land? Why do you have to send the spies into Israel if Hashem promised us he would give us the land? Well, sending the miraglim a lack of faith. So I just explained, no, it goes hand in hand. God makes the promise, but then he wants us to make the effort. Your God will bless you. God will bless us. B'chol Within the container we make, everything we do, so we have to make a container. It's like a blessing comes from above, but you need a container to hold on to. The container consists of both not just a receptacle, but also the efforts we make, the things we do in order to be able to contain and draw down that blessing. If we send the spies because we had to achieve the conquest via natural means, and before a battle the natural thing to do is to pay, spy on the enemy in order to strategize the best method of conquest, then it's also natural to be afraid before a battle. Okay, an interesting question. You have maniacs running around with sharp weapons. Not all of us were born warriors. Some of us would prefer to just sit quietly in the corner by ourselves and learn the best by martyrdom of the Friedrich Reb, or for that matter, any Reb. It's normal to be afraid before a battle. Why would sending the spies be a natural method and not a lack of faith? But being afraid of battling giants is considered a lack of faith, which made Hashem angry and punished everyone to die in the desert. If I were a judge, I would declare that we did nothing wrong by being afraid of the Miraglim's report, the scout's report. It was a scary report, therefore God punished us wrongly. And to make, us, to make it up to us, I bang my gavel and decree he must send Mashiach immediately. Okay, that last sentence I would agree. I'm not banging the gavel, but definitely... We can request and even demand. But to answer your question, I really answered it by preempting it with what I've said earlier, but let me spell it out. Yes, it's absolutely true that we have to use natural means. But this is the key and most beautiful, eloquent partnership here. On one hand, we have to do everything possible with the resources we were given. Resources we were given. But we have to remember, it's not, we're not self-made people. No. Not that I can do it myself. 
it's that God gives us the strength. So there's really three options. You could just say, I rely on God, I do nothing. And I sleep. And God will do everything. The other extreme, I'm a self-made person, I don't need God. Or, and that's the, the key to the story of Maraglim and so many other stories in the Torah, that it's a combination. We absolutely need God. First of all, He gives us life and gives us strength and gives us health and gives us all the blessings. On the other hand, we need to partner. We need to, ex- we need to actualize it. So on one hand, it's coming from strength from above. At the same time, it's also coming from our efforts. And they join together. It's not a contradiction. So when it comes to saying don't do anything naturally, no, you have to do whatever you can. That's also part of God's plan. The same God that can do anything and can miraculously help us go into the promised land without our efforts said, no, that's not the way I want to do it. I'm doing it through you. I'm giving you intelligence. I'm giving you emotions. I'm giving you tools and resources. So by not using those resources, we're actually defying God. On the other hand, even when we do the resource, we, we use these resources, we have to remember that's Birchus Hashem, Hitashir. God's blessing is what makes us wealthy. Is it a, a, a challenging balance? Of course it is. It's much easier to one extreme or the other. Only complete dependence on God or dependence on oneself. But that's the beauty of the interface. The whole purpose of existence is that we should enter this world, a world of Tachtenim, where there's no revealed godliness, as the Alter Rebbe explains in chapter 36 in Tanya. And we should discover the resources within us that may be also concealed, reveal them, and transform the darkness of the world into a garden, divine garden. So it's a combination of both. So not to use your natural methods, for example, to scout the land and figure out how to go in. That's not, that's shlach lecha. That's why you send scouts. To go that far and say, be afraid? No. Yes, it may naturally you won't be afraid of going to war, but you have to remember it's God that's giving you the blessings. So it's not one extreme or the other. It doesn't mean since natural, we have to rely on our natural skills, then we also have to tremble and be frightened and retreat? No. You have to engage in life. Engage in life with the tools that you have. So the first half is correct. That's what we have to do. Is it defensible that a person should be afraid? Well, of course, because that's human beings can be frightened of an enemy, can be frightened of war. But that's why we invoke, as Kolov and Yeshua did, Hashem, that God is with us. We're not fighting alone. We're fighting, but we're not fighting alone. So those are, that's the combination, the partnership here. No, the punishment was everything is cause and effect. There wasn't a punishment. God got, got angry and he's getting even with us. As I've explained many times, the Shalok quotes that that punishment and reward is cause and effect. When you yourself become so frightened and you become afraid of your enemy, you become vulnerable and fragile. And as a result, you become your own worst enemy. What did the Miraglim say? I'm sorry, we felt like we were grasshoppers, like insects before them. And that's how we appeared to them. So the question is asked, what's objectively? What does it mean that you appear that way to them? If you were small and they were giants, that's it, an objective reality. But it's projection. We appeared, we felt like we were insects. And therefore we appeared that way to them. It's psychological warfare. Which means if you psychologically you feel weak, then your enemy is going to sense it and your enemy is, going to, is, is, is going to be able to vanquish you because you have already given them that strength. Like the Alter Rebbe says in chapter 26 in Tanya, that it's like a wrestle match, a wrestling match between the divine soul and the animal soul. Or in general, and depression weakens you, even though you're stronger, but if you don't have confidence in yourself, you feel demoralized and depressed, you won't have the energy to fight. So the same thing here. It was what they brought upon themselves. Because we have to participate in this. And our attitude is critical to have that confidence. Okay, and that's why the punishment caused an effect that as a result, you feel weak. So of course you're going to be vulnerable to your enemy. How could you go into Eretz Yisrael when you yourself are saying you don't have the power to do so? So it was an effect of their own projection. 
Had they not projected that weakness, they would have gone in and they would have been successful, as we see their children were, the next generation that did enter, in Kolov, with including Kolov and Yeshua. Another question in the Pasha, later after this story, we have a small few, a few verses that are, they're not, no one skips over them, but they're not always so emphasized. And that's the story of the Ma'apilin. Who were the Ma'apilin? Why were they punished for taking an initiative and trying to enter Israel? In other cases, we see people who took the initiative, like Nachshem ben Menadov, who jumped into the Yam Suf. That's by this parting of the Red Sea. He jumped in, and Hashem appreciated his initiative and split the sea. If it's wrong to take an initiative, are we wrong for taking the initiative and asking Hashem to send Mashiach, or for doing things to make Mashiach come faster before the time Hashem has determined? Okay, very good question. But it continues with the same theme. So who are the Ma'apilim? And Ma'apilim says, Vayapilu, the Pasuk says, they were defiant. Rashi says they were stubborn, strong. They were defiant. Now, you could ask the question, the story goes like this. After what happened with the Miraglim, that they had refused and they had incited the people not to enter the Promised Land. So a group of people decided we're going to enter the Promised Land. And they went marching. And Moshe said, do not go. Hashem is not going with you. The Oren, Habris, the, the covenant of the Ark of the Covenant did not go with them to protect them. And what happened was, as Moshe told them, they were not successful. They were crushed by the enemies. By Molech, by Kanani, as the Pasuk says. So the question is, didn't they do exactly what the Miraglim didn't want to do? They wanted to show, we're not listening to them. They caused us all to cry. The Miraglim did. Not, and afraid. We're not afraid. We're going in. So, what, so which one is it? We're going or we're not going? But remember, the Miraglim were sent to scout the land. It wasn't yet entering the land. This went the other extreme. This is saying, okay, we can do it on our own. So the key thing to remember is the balance. On one hand, yes, we have to take initiative. And in this case, the initiative is to scout out the land and prepare the ground. Then Hashem will tell us when to go. So we also need God's help. One should never think we're self-made. Their mistake was not, they were correct in saying that the Miraglim are wrong and we should not be afraid to go in. They were wrong in saying we have to go in now without the command of Hashem and with the leading, with Moshe leading them with the ark, with the Arun Habris that was meant to protect them. So they went to the other extreme. Like like, and that's why that was the problem there. So you have in the chapter itself all the lessons necessary in life that on one hand we have to take initiative, on the other hand we have to always be humble and recognize that itself is coming from God and we have to recognize where the the boundaries of our effort and when we have to move forward. First of all, Hashem said, move forward and not get stuck. That was the command already. The command was not to wait. And Nachshem did that. In many cases, that's once we're told to go, we have to go full force ahead, forge ahead. But here, they were not yet ready to go in. And that was the challenge, and that was what the Mapilim, and that's why the Torah tells us, because it's telling us both sides. That now, yes, it's important now to have the mindset, you're ready to go in, you have the strength to do so, but now you have to wait for the right moment when God wants us to do so and leads the way and protects us. And that's what actually happened after the next generation, Yeshua, led the Jews into Eretz Yisrael, led by, with God's direction. So there you have lessons in life, as we always say, living with the times, chassidus applied, applying the parsha to life as it is. This is general lessons at all times, but especially when we learn this chapter and we read it, so it's very relevant. Okay. So with that, let us go over, since we're entering into the summer months, which always begins in this part of the world, this part of the world. So a question about that goes like this. What are the Rebbe's directives for the summer? I seem to remember every year at the beginning of the summer, the Rebbe would send a letter to Gan Yisrael. It was the camp, the camps summer camps, and to other camps with special teachings and blessings for the kids. Blessings for the kids. Once I think the Rebbe wrote, and I paraphrase, the summer activities and sports and exercise are meant to strengthen the body so the body can be stronger and be able to learn more Torah and do more mitzvahs. 
Since is the time, this, since this is the time many of us are sending our kids to camp, this would be a good opportunity for Rabbi Jacobson to elaborate on the Rebbe's letters and explain how and when they originated and discuss some of the contents of these letters. Thank you. Yes, okay. That is a very good suggestion and very timely. So we all remember growing up as children, we grew up with talks and tales, or schmus and kinder. This was a publication for children that the Rebbe initiated back in the 40s. The Rebbe became the head of Kohos, the Chabad Publication Society, Kohos Publication Society. And in it, I remember even as a child, always came before the summer, there was always that box that said that summer is a vacation from your material activities, but not a vacation from your spiritual ones. In other words, that even though there are certain things, whether it was school or other activities for, that we are, we slow down during the summer and this more recreational, more free time, we should not think we're on vacation from our spiritual activities. And now, on the contrary, since we're freed from that and the weather is nice and other opportunities to serve our deeper purpose. And this became, like I remember, always etched in my memory. That was always the theme. Essentially, that's what the Rebbe wrote in the letters. Obviously, the Rebbe always added different nuances, different points. But that's the essence of it. Actually, it says in Chassidus, in my Marim, it brings, that in the summer month, it's easier to serve God. And the reason is, The sun is shining stronger. It's warmer days. And warmth is a sign of more godliness. The cold winter in Medrashim and others are alluded to more spiritual, more spiritual distance. And indeed, the summer month is when the holidays are. Shavuos, of course, is right at the outset of summer. And Sukkot and Pesach, I'm sorry, Pesach is the beginning of spring. Aviv, Chaydesh Aviv, then Shavuos. And Sukkot is the end of the summer, going into autumn. And the winter months are compared to months where the child of the king goes off back to his world to transform the cold, darker months into the warmth of godliness. So Shem Shemagan Hashem Alakim is radiating. Shem Shemagan Hashem Alakim means the sun and its sheath is, reflects Hashem and Alakim, a divine revelation. It's true, it says in other places that in the summer there are also more challenges. That's why we learn Perkyov is one of the reasons, because people are more loose when it's warmer months. The Nefeshabamis is also, the animal souls also somewhat uh, wakes up as well. But it's not a contradiction because wherever there's more gilly, Wherever there's more revelation, there's also more challenge. So to translate that in language for children, or language for all of us, is that, that materialism has a lesser hold, and now the challenge is to bring that spirituality. Is there a challenge? Of course, because it's easy for people to say, okay, I'm just taking off from work, I'm, taking, I'm going on vacation, I'm going to be at a beach. Relax. The Rebbe's view is that the relaxation is meant to relax the body so the soul can come alive. But that needs to be done. It doesn't happen automatically. And indeed, summer camp, as the Rebbe would always emphasize, has that 24-7 dimension, especially overnight camps, where the children are in a complete environment of Torah and mitzvahs. And yes, they do spend more time perhaps playing and so on, but remember, if it's done L'Shem Shamayim to strengthen the body in order for the soul to be stronger, then it's all part of serving God. So summer is meant to be used in that way, to focus when things are less pressured, so to speak, at work. People take off more time, not just to take off to take off, but to focus on the more transcendental, the more God-centric activities of our lives. That's the essential message. And that has to be translated to each target audience, to each group differently, according to their, their, their uh, the language that they understand. For children, it comes down to, here, you have the opportunity, you're not going to school all day, you know, the homework and all the other pressures. You have, more, you have more free time, you have more recreational time, which is great. Enjoy it with family, with, with uh, friends, with, whether it's in summer or whether it's in camp or in whatever, however people celebrate or honor the summer months. But also remember that you have now the opportunity to focus more on your soul because you, can, you have the time and you have that, uh, I guess, more uh, laid back attitude that can really focus on spiritual activity. But for that, you have to make spirituality important. For children, if it's presented in a way that's also a burden, 
They'll say, so what's it? We went over from one burden to another burden. It has to be made in a way that you really experience pleasure. You experience in a fun way. Imagine experiencing godliness in a fun and, 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 and passionate fashion. That's the challenge that summer camps have. And that's, of course, the job of the faculty, of the counselors, of adults who are around them to create an environment where they, they feel that acts of loving others, davening, learning, doing mitzvahs, is done with an excitement, as we see in many camps. And children come away transformed as a result of that. Because the more the children enjoy it, the more powerful it will become integrated and internalized. Which is the essential message Talked before about shlach lecha ledaitcha, not just that God said to do so. It should be lecha, ledaitcha, it should be internalized in your life. Shalheva se'lemeyleh, like a flame that rises on its own, because then it becomes something sustainable and permanent, because it's become part of you. And we see our children, have, have been, they've been transformed in camps during summer months in ways that even schools don't achieve. That type of literally maturing and growing and experiencing godliness, experiencing in an environment that is fun, that is enjoyable and pleasurable. Okay. Since we're on that topic, meaning this shift in the seasons, so another person asks, how important are friends when it comes to bochur shlichus? What he means by this is the shlichus of bochim who go sent to different yeshivas around the world. So how important are friends? I have a good option for a year of shlichus this, this, this uh, student is writing that he has a good option to go for a year to study somewhere, but none of my close friends will be going there. Or is it preferable to stay and be a shlich in a place where I've been for years together with some of my best friends? But on the other hand, I'm interested in new places and new opportunities. So I'm speaking about this now because this is a time of the season where school year ends and the next year begins and people have to make choices. So this is appropriate timing to talk about this. It's a very good question, and it's not easy to answer in a blanket fashion, because it's ultimately case by case. On one hand, just to spell out the two options, on one hand, there's a beautiful thing to be able to be with friends, because there's a camaraderie, and there's a team effort, and there's a synergy. On the other hand, sometimes going when you don't have friends is a greater challenge, but also greater satisfaction, because you can perhaps be more of a pioneer. So I think it has to do a lot with the personality of, of the individual. There are some people who have that maverick attitude, and I say that in a positive way, that like to take something. Now, of course, if you could have friends and that, that would be great. So I think it's case by case for that reason. And uh, I don't know if there's a black and white answer to that. Uh, to co- you know, because at this age, usually it's good to have that type of, of to, to have friends that are like-minded, but at the same time, friends that are like-minded can also put you into a comfort zone where you're not really blossoming. Besides leaving home, leaving your, your community where you're accustomed to, is also sometimes going in a place where not all your friends are there. So I don't have a black and white answer because like I said, it would be nice if you have a good few good friends and maybe that's what you should explore. Can you find a few friends that are ready to go with you to this place? Who says uh, that that can't happen? I mean... Obviously, you need the cooperation of the schools, and I don't know how it's been set up. But I would not rule it out, even if you don't have those friends, because you can make new friends, and you can create your environment, which is very gratifying to do. Yes, it's a little more challenging, but it's very gratifying. That's why I think that both, both options are very are viable and legitimate. And you have to really feel what, most, what's, what works best for you. And that you need to talk to a mashpia or someone, a friend, and just... Uh, just weigh the pros and cons of each. But I don't think there's a big mistake if you do one or the other. Each way has its great qualities. And God bless you and everybody to make the right decisions. Remember, Mashem which is really also a summer lesson. God leads the footsteps of a person as we travel, wherever we may be over the summer. God leads you there. And that means you have all the strengths you need, like we spoke before about the Miraglim. If you're led there, it means you have all the strengths and resources you need to accomplish what you need to accomplish is to transform that place into a more teira, more godly, a more chassidish environment. Okay. So we covered this summer, we covered shlichus. Okay, I want to talk about now something a little more sensitive topic, which I have discussed in previous episodes over the years. 
But sadly, this has become more of a prominent headline in so many of our lives. And, and that's the issue of, um, I'm not even sure how to phrase it, but let's call it transgender issue, the gender crisis. So the question, the overriding question, the overall question is, how do we address and deal with transgender issues? So especially of late, we've been hearing different communities, and unfortunately it's almost everywhere, um, the idea of young men and women who are saying they're not comfortable with the gender with which they were born, and they are um, thinking of changing genders. Unfortunately, it's not just in the secular world, it's also in the more religious communities as well. And not only is it uh, so shocking to parents and family and communities, it's like no one, no one knows how to look at it and deal with it. So let me talk about it. As I said, I will, have, I will refer you to the episodes where I discussed it, just for the, to be thorough. So I discussed it at least four times, episode 60, 108, 391, and 397. And uh, I recall then, I also read a letter from the Rebbe, which I want to read here as well, about this topic. So let me just break it into a few parts here. And then I'll, I'll, I'll well, maybe I'll first read a few of the questions regarding this. Are there only two genders according to the Torah? What about Timtum and Andragonus, which are different categories that the Gemara talks about, people who are either born with someone in both male and female, or neither of the two. There's different categories, which I'm not going to go into now. Maybe we'll talk about that in another episode. So that's one question. I'm going to just read a bunch of questions, then I'll talk about the whole topic, instead of focusing on each specific question and answering each one. I'll answer it in a more uh, global way. Hi, Rabbi. Uh, and I am reading it with a little discretion, I, even though I like to read usually completely uncensored, but some of it is very sensitive. And I think also I should answer, add viewer discretion advised that if any children or anybody that's listening now that you feel as an adult shouldn't be listening to this for whatever reason, please know I'm going to be talking about something a little more sensitive, but I am definitely going to edit a bit. Now, not because, God forbid, I want to cut out anything anyone wants to express themselves, but simply out of respect to the audiences. So I'll, I'll couch it somewhat in words that are a little more, um, that won't uh, in any way offend anybody. Hi, Rabbi. I'm a 27-year-old Balash Shuva in Israel. I watched your podcast with regards to finding a mashpia, and I'm also currently struggling to, struggling to find a mashpia Rav and Rabbi in general. I used to defer to my local rabbi, but as I am now looking at marriage, my questions are a bit too specialized for him, and I also would like to find a rabbi I can turn to in Israel. I have a bit of a complicated background in bullet points. I was born female. Used to identify as male due to my childhood teenage trauma. During identifying as male, I underwent a hysterectomy, so I'm infertile until uterus transplants are more open to the public. Now I've returned to identifying as female because it was more important to me to be religious and honest with people than to present as male. I underwent gear l'chumra, which means a conversion, l'chumra means halacha conversion. As my mom claims she's Jewish, but we were, we were, we were estranged, and I've lost contact with her. So I guess the chumrah, she means not halachic. She means that even though her mom claims she was Jewish, she still went through a gear because she was estranged and just to be sure. I don't know where she lives, her family or anything, so I don't have much to go on, but I've been Orthodox for eight years. My father and his side of the family are also not in contact with, with her. Baruch Hashem, I have found a good shidduch, but obviously there are a lot of questions bugging me with regards to our fertility options, options for having kids in general, including adoption. Taras Mishpacha, and more. I was wondering if there are any recommendations you can make as to Mashpia, and also as to Rav, knowledgeable, especially in fertility, etc. Thank you. So, let me go to the next question. As I said, I'll address each one as we go along. Another question. Why do we get so offended when a person identifies as gender neutral? After all, isn't God not defined, is not, God is not defined by any particular gender? Another question. 
Does the Torah recognize and permit gender change surgery? If someone born a female changed to a male, would they be allowed to have man status and count in a minion? Another person writes, I was wondering, hi, I was wondering if you saw Matt Walsh's film, What is a Woman? And if you did, what you thought about it, especially through the lens of Torah and Chassidus. I'm sure you've addressed the topic of transgenderism before, but I'm specifically wondering about your stance on what our role in fighting these negative forces is. Or as another person wrote it, another question in this context was, should we be taking a stance or fighting the latest trends embracing transgenderism? And finally, this is, I'll just read in brief, um, that this whole gender issue is causing women to be forced to sit back and watch in silence as men who think they are women dominate in their sports, go to women's spas and bathrooms and show and demonstrate themselves, making everybody extremely uncomfortable. Some say that women deserve this for wanting equal rights, voting for Democrats or other liberal politicians. Though obviously this uh, argument is a little uh, ridiculous. Because just voting with Republic does not shield women from this issue. There are also Republicans who support transgenderism. And there are Democrats against it. Bottom line is women just can't do anything right, it seems. They're being blamed and then they're being abused by all of this. Women are being called different names, just not, as not to offend transgenders. Some theorize that all st- it all started because society decided to see men and women as the same. I wish society understands that feminists felt the need to suppress differences because the difference was, was how women were treated badly in the first place. So, th- so on one hand, yes, women were being discriminated against and historically barred from higher education. She goes on to bring about back and forth, is that part of the reason that all of this has resulted in a type of blurring of the boundaries between male and female? Some are thankfully starting to see the difference does not have to mean women can't have a career or men can't be more present with their children but can even contribute something to these fields. But there seems to be an impasse right now that is causing harm to women. Children are being hurt in this process of identifying, of trying to figure out their sexual identity, and to the point that some are actually having procedures that will never allow them to have children on their own, and other harmful factors. Is there anything that can be done that can help overcome these obstacles? So this is just a selection of, literally, I must have received over the last year hundreds of questions on this topic. Obviously, I can't read them all, but this captures it, and I'll try to address some of the specific questions as we go along. But I, as in some situations, and most, you like to talk about the topic overall instead of just band-aids and plugging holes and just addressing specifics. Because then there's every question leads to another question, even if you have an answer. But look at it a little more. What is the Torah perspective on all of this? Chassidus perspective. Chassidus applied to this challenging issue. So let's begin with this. The Torah and Chassidus, which I speak as synonymous, Torah and Chassidus, are based on the first principle that God created the human being. Like the Torah begins, the sixth day of creation, God chose to create the human being in the divine image. Male and female, he created them. The first statement about a human being. So clearly it is God's choice how we're created. Just as we're created with a brain and a heart and other parts of the body, like we spoke earlier, the Miraglim, the scouts were asked to figure out how to conquer the land, not whether. How we are created is only defined by the Creator. We're not creators. However, we do live in a world of challenges. As I spoke, discussed earlier, God puts us in a world where you do not see openly God's plan and God's purpose. It's concealed. In the language of Kabbalah, this symptom conceals it. And we see material reality is obvious, and spiritual reality and divine reality is novel. It takes effort to access it. But it is the true reality. That defines who we are. That's why we were given a Torah. 
So the Torah was given exactly for this purpose, to, clar- to, to define clearly the boundaries, the boundaries between land and water, and the boundaries between man and woman, the boundaries between heaven and earth, the boundaries between the windpipe and the food pipe. So the existence is defined by structures. And structures, on one hand, there's a profound synergy where everything works together, but there's also profound diversity. And the balance is the critical thing. Imagine all the organs in the body decide we're all going to become one in the name of unity. That would create destruction. It's harmony within diversity, like an orchestra. Different musicians, different, different instruments, all playing one beautiful music. Different colors creating one tapestry. And the same thing with male and female. We have much in common. And every masculine energy exists also within the feminine. And feminine energy exists within the masculine. As a matter of fact, when you learn this, it talks about where masculine and feminine energy originates. Two divine tracks. So it's not just a biological, physical, physiological thing in this world. It goes all the way to the root that God created two forms of energy that would ultimately divide into male and female. Which is, it deserves its own discussion. If you want more on that, please go to Torah Meaning for Life, my book, Chapter Women and Men, which, which summarizes the theological and especially the mystical take on men and women. And they complement each other in this context. Just like when you say, So there's the masculine dimension of divine revelation, and there's the feminine dimension. In God himself, there's also so-called gender. It's not physical gender, and God is not defined by the gender. It's beyond it. But he chose to manifest in spheres. So the critical thing to remember that life consists of that combination that harmony within diversity. And no one is allowed to tamper with that. As soon as that one, it's actually the Isra of Kalayim, of mixing, whether it's uh, shotness, linen and wool, or mixing different types of plants, and the Torah tells us the laws, is part of appreciating, as the Rabbeinu B'chai says, these boundaries. Some things are meant to be mixed, some things are meant to be mixed in a certain way. Look, marriage, Sacred marriage brings birth of children and families. We wouldn't be here if male and female did not, did not join together in a sacred union. Like the Torah says, they become one flesh. The Torah tells us how. So it's critical to understand this foundation of it all. That's purely on the philosophical level. But let's talk now on the personal level. People go through challenges in life. And I think we have to begin with a sensitivity. If anyone is struggling with any of these issues that we addressed here, or others, gender issues, identity issues, I'm not comfortable in my own skin, I'm not comfortable as a boy or as a girl, they have to be addressed very sensitively. It's not to be mocked and laughed at. It's not to be dismissed. Obviously, if you're talking about something that seems superficial, that, that, can be pass- that just passes, it's one thing. But it should be addressed, and addressed with tremendous sensitivity. I begin with that because, unfortunately, in the name of what I just said before about the Torah's boundaries, some people just impose that and they forget that they're talking to a human being. So as repugnant or as repulsive it may sound that somebody wants to change their gender, we cannot be judgmental. It's not our job to be that way. That's not what we were told. We have to be sensitive. It's a symptom. It's just like anything a person is acting out. If there's something going on with there's smoke, there's fire. So instead of focusing on the symptom, you have to focus, what is bothering this child? Why are they in this place? Now, is it possible that God made a mistake? We'll soon, talk, we'll soon read the Rebbe's letter on this topic. So God forbid that God would make a mistake. Is it possible that some people have more female tendencies, even though they're physically male? And some females have more male tendencies? You see that all the time. There are some women more aggressive. There are some men who are more effeminate. Effeminate. But that's part of the creation. Not everything, there's not one color. Not one size fits all. But still, that's a big difference than than a gender change. So the first thing is sensitivity. Sensitivity, what is a person struggling with? And why are they struggling? Without that, you only can create more problems. I can tell you from personal experience in dealing with this, when you're not sensitive, so the child feels, number one, misunderstood, feels criticized, feels judged, 
And that only feeds their insecurity and their demoralization and their alienation, especially if it's coming from family and community and from schools. And that never helps. It never helps. Does a child need discipline and sometimes be told what to do? Yes, but it has to be done with a sensitivity and love. And if it's not done that way, it can create a lot of damage. Now, sensitivity and love, on the other hand, does not mean just being, uh, 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 being stepped over, meaning whatever the child wants, that's what we do. The child wants to become a male, a girl wants to become a boy. No problem, we're sensitive to you. That's not what I'm saying. Sensitivity is the foundation of communication. Then we have to address the actual issue. But once there's sensitivity, it's a much easier to address the issue. I'm not saying that solves the problem, but without it, you're only going to make the problem worse. So that's the first and most important thing to state. The next thing is, if a situation that you're in, if you're a parent that has a child that's struggling with this, or you're a friend or you know somebody, it's critical to speak to professionals. And not professionals who have no boundaries and just say everything goes. Professionals who understand a Torah approach, understand gender, understand issues, understand psychology from a Torah Siddhis point of view. Are there people like that? There may not be many, but there are some. Because it's very hard to deal with yourself, especially as a parent. What do we know? Our job is to be loving to our children. We're not necessarily trained to be doctors and surgeons, including psychological experts on gender issues, sexual issues. But at the end of the day, what we're dealing with is an identity crisis. Not just a gender identity, it's a general identity. And identity is often associated with sexual identity. Whether it's homosexuality, whether it's transgender issues, whether it's heterosexual challenges. It's not like the heterosexual world has it all figured out. How much infidelity is there? How sacred are marriages? How sacred are people's loyalty in, in, a, in a marriage? We're dealing with a crisis throughout, across the board. It's not exclusive Yes, some of it may jump out and some of us feel much more offended when it comes to transgender or gay or so on. But that's more of a homophobic issue, a personal issue. But from a Torah point of view, we're dealing with a sexual identity, which means that if no one teaches a child what their identity is, of course they're going to be looking for identity elsewhere. I can tell you from my years of experience, people searching for an identity, any form, and this doesn't necessarily mean sexual, it could be what, what, what do I stand for? Most people are going to be conformists and going to conform to the standards or expectations of their social group because that's the easiest and that's where you're accepted. You're not, people don't necessarily want to stand out. So most people's identity never has really developed and matured because they were either didn't have the courage or they were forced by parents and educators to fit into a mold that wasn't necessarily fully for them. So we're dealing with general, and whenever there's no person doesn't have a strong identity, what do I stand for? What do you think that person is going to be vulnerable, susceptible, impressionable to whatever comes their way? And suddenly, oh, here's a friend going to school. They're wearing earrings. Maybe that's what I should do. So the more you know who you are, the more you're immunized you are from other influences. The more you can influence others, the less you will be influenced by them. But we have a vicious cycle of the blind leading the blind because of the real foundation is there's a lack of spiritual identity. That's what the Torah is saying. You were created in the divine image. That comes right before the word male and female. The first thing is you are created in the divine image. You are essentially a piece of the divine, which means you're part of God's plan. And you have a spiritual dimension to you, which is called your soul. Then there's how it manifests, male or female, tall or short, or the different differences that we are, more cerebral, more emotional. That's, that's also fundamental, but it all begins with what is your spiritual identity? Why are you here in this world? I can assure you that if any child, any boy or girl, would know clearly that why I'm here in this world, they would have less struggles with their identity. Because that would be, I know why I'm here, now let me use my identity, whether it's male or female, whether it's my intelligence or emotions or other resources and skills, creative skills, musical ones, artistic ones, analytical ones, whatever it may be, people skills, to fulfill my mission. But it all begins with a mission. That's the thing that's lacking, long term. Short term, you have to deal with the situation as it is, and hopefully you can nip it in the bud. But if you really want to preempt these issues, 
It all goes down to what are we teaching our children? Are we teaching them that they're divine creatures in the physical world? They're not physical beings on a spiritual journey. They're spiritual beings on a physical journey. And they have a very clear identity. And that identity is meant to fulfill their mission. This is the single most important message. And we have to convey it in a sensitive way and a loving way. Not focused, no, even no matter how repre- reprehensible and how disturbed we may be when someone says, I don't want, I'm not comfortable being a boy or a girl, man or woman. That's not what we should be focusing on. We should be focusing, who are you? Let's talk about you and how special you are. Forget about boy and girl now. You're God's child. And then we'll figure out how to implement that mission. First, what is that mission? And the earlier we begin, the better it is. That's the general approach that Torah Chassidus has to this attitude. And now I want to read to you the letter from the Rebbe on this topic. And then I will try to answer some of the more specific questions that were asked. So here's the letter from, a Rebbe, from the Rebbe. If anybody wants to just post at the forum, we have a platform where you can ask questions, um, submit questions at chassidusapply.com, but we need your email address because it's completely anonymous. We can't send you anything unless we know where to send it. So please email if you want to have a copy of this letter. So I'm going to read the letter right now. The letter from the Rebbe. It was a letter written in Tovshin Mem Hay, interestingly. The date is the 22nd of Tovshin Mem Hay, 1985. And the Rebbe writes, I'm just going to go straight to the topic. There's surely no need to point out to you at length that one of the basics of our Torah, Torah's Chaim, is that Hashem is the creator and master of the universe, whose benevolent providence extends to each and every one individually, and that He is the essence of goodness and is in the nature of the good to do good, particularly in regard to our Jewish people to whom He has given His Torah, Torah's Chaim, Torah of life, of which it is stated that it is our life and the length of our days, the Torah is, together with its mitzvahs whereby Jews live. As you know, and indicate also in your letter, there are mitzvahs which apply to Jewish males and those that apply to Jewish females. And the distinction in regard to the fulfillment of the mitzvahs is a far-reaching one. In light of the above, it is not clear why you should want to interfere with Hashem's blessings and contemplate a change of sex, especially as it would immediately bring in complications regarding Torah and mitzvahs, even assuming that there would be no problems in other areas. And since this is quite plain and understandable, there's no need to elaborate on it. As far as as for your writing that you have sometimes had the desire to be born, to have been born a female, etc., it is not surprising that a human being cannot understand the ways of Hashem, who surely knows what is best for every individual. However, if this desire is somewhat troublesome to you, it would be advisable that you should talk things over with a Torah observant psychologist. I suggest that you should have your tefillin checked to make sure they are kosher, with blessing and the Rebbe's signature. So there you have the letter. Again, if anybody wants to just post on the form at chsedesupply.com, be happy to send it to you. So it speaks for itself, but I just want to now tag, take this back to some of the questions that were asked. So I think that most of the questions I've answered, but the one I wanted to specifically address is that if you do want someone to speak to, I would suggest communicating first directly with myself, which just can be done through that form. Just leave your email address or phone number, and we will contact you. Because I want to hear more details before I recommend who to speak to, to understand the situation, and more, and more of the nuances, which are very vital to know how to, um, to, know how to communicate it properly and help you move with your life. Regarding the film that was mentioned, so the film was very much a more, uh, I'd say, conservative film. I didn't see it, but I read about it. 
And my, my thoughts I expressed through Torah Siddhis I already explained in the discussion we've had. So I don't need to go over that. Just looking if there are any other specific questions. I think I addressed the issue pretty comprehensively, at least in general terms. And I would love to hear feedback and thoughts and further questions, because obviously it's not a topic that can be exhausted even in a half hour or an hour. But since it's such an important topic, I, uh, I, I felt important to address it. Okay. Now, there was a follow-up last week. We talked about, is it appropriate for schools to have their students solicit for a fundraising campaign? So someone wrote to me that they were surprised that I did not cite something that I myself had said months ago about an unrelated topic. And I, w- I do want to cite it because I think it is relevant. Simchas Teda Tafshinun Beis. So the year is 1991. It would be the last Simchas Teda that the Rebbe was with us because after that would come the stroke, unfortunately. So the Rebbe, interestingly, that I bring in the before HaKofas, the Rebbe spoke a lot about children and actually had the children say L'chaim, about the connection of children to Simchas Teda and children to Mashiach. And he brought the Gemara. The Gemara says that when they build the Beis HaMikdash, everybody has to participate. There's nothing more important than building the Holy Temple. Except Teneka Shal Beis Children in school, school children. Why? Because it says, Altigi B'Mashiach. Don't touch, don't touch Mashiach, my anointed ones. And who are my anointed ones? Elu Teneka Shal Beis These are the children that go to school and learn Teda. And the Rebbe explained, well, why not? Beis HaMikdash is not important to them. It's not the most important thing because they're Mashiach. They're even greater than the Beis HaMikdash. So by taking them away from their learning, you're actually undermining the Beis HaMikdash. So essentially, everybody has to participate. And children, through their learning, they're doing exactly that. They're building the Beis HaMikdash. Or even greater. al So if that's the case with the Beis HaMikdash, even the building of it, I think that's what the person is suggesting. Is it appropriate for a, a yeshiva or a cheder that's doing a fundraising campaign, a beautiful one. They're building a base of Migdash, a Migdash Ma'at, a mini sanctuary, a place of learning, a place that will transform children. Should the children be participants in the actual building? The children learning is their way that they build. So I think it is a good support to the idea that we keep the children away from that, from the money part. Let them learn, focus on learning, focus. They'll have plenty of time as they get older. Unfortunately, they're going to learn about money and they're going to learn about the challenges around that. And I'm not saying raising money for yeshiva is not a beautiful thing. But at the point of this point, they're kept pure in learning Teira, Teneka Shal Beis and Altiga B'Meshichai, even for building the Beis HaMikdash. So that was one follow-up I wanted to share. There are some other topics that I want to talk about, but time is always limiting. I always feel like I can never catch up. Reminds me, but the Rebbe said to someone that he said, it was once Friday, and the Rebbe was rushing, and the Rebbe said, What could I do? I was born Friday. We're running and rushing and never finished what had to be done. So the Rebbe expressed himself. Which you see the Rebbe's work was always, the Rebbe always felt there's more to do and it's not finished yet. And obviously Mashiach is the ultimate destination. So I'm not comparing myself, but it just reminds me of... Uh... So, let me just then do the Chassidus question, and, uh, which we always do. The question is, what is the Rishimu? How can we apply it to life? And the second question, Dear Rabbi, many times in my modem, the Rabbeim explained the process of Seder Ishtashlis, the cosmic order, in a, in a way where it seems like worlds or kalim always existed, the worlds and kalim always existed, and then talk about oyer light going inside those kalim that already exist. For example, when talking about simsum, etc., it usually is taught simsum conceals the oyer so that the kalim can be fitting receptacles to receive the oyer. My question is, when did kalim get into the picture? They haven't been introduced yet. All we have so far in the picture is oyer and sof, I guess... And Simpson, there are no Kalim yet to receive any light. When and where did they emerge from? Seems like all my modern speak in a way that Kalim were always just there. Looking forward to your clarification and elaboration. 
Then that same person writes, following up on my question of where Kalim came from, is that where the two eras before the Tzimtzum, Er HaGvul and Er HaBlikvul, and Kalim come from Er HaGvul? And the answer is yes, that's correct. And that answers also the question of the Rishimu. So first of all, in some Maimorim, it's that language that you're quoting is correct, but there are Maimorim, very clear Maimorim, that talk exactly about the evolution of how Kalim came to be. And to put it more specifically, the fact of the matter is that there's one Eberster. He has Yecholte Lahoyer, Yecholte Shalei Lahoyer, we're told. He has the capacity to radiate, to express, to reveal, and the capacity to conceal or not to radiate. That would become the root, ultimately, because God wanted everything to be logical, of two teches. Kashem sheyesh lekeche bebilte balgvul, kach yesh lekeche begvul. Just like he has the ability to infinitely express and expand, he has the ability to create confined states as well. And those are the ten spheres. Choch, mabina, das. By definition, they're boundaries, as we spoke before about boundaries, about structure. It's still not kalim. And it, 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 it's still all a matter of oir, because oir is the expression of the divine. The oir ablikvul, oir agvul. But the tzimtzum will conceal the infinite possibilities and now the Eiragvul and the Koyechagvul, the power of the, of the finite, emerges. And that is what the Tzimtzum allows to emerge because when it's before the Tzimtzum, everything is encompassed in God's infinite divine energy and there's no room for any worlds, for any existence. But as the Arizal says, the Tzimtzum created a Chol a space, an empty space, figuratively, conceptually speaking, like a teacher who conceals his brilliance so the student can be present, leave space for the student. But it says, Nahagah, the Alter Rebbe brings, Nahagah from Eitzes Chaim, from the Arizal, in the Kutta Tere, the Esophers of Abuchu Kesai, he brings from the Hagah there in the, in the Arizal, that Cholomokomponim Lavdafke, doesn't mean complete empty space, because a Rishimu remained. The Rishimu is a trace, an impression of what was there before. That Rishimu would be the, is the Koyach HaGvul, but it's not revealed yet because it's still in a state of like a potential state, but it's there. The Koyach HaGvul, which is the Sheirish HaKelim, that's the language from Chassidus, the root of containers, the root of containers. Now, as, this, as the Kav would then come, the Kav activates this Rishimu, this Koyach HaGvul, think of it like a seed, but the seed needs to grow and develop. So the Kav activates it. The Kav is a light, a ray of light that comes from before the Tzimtzum, travels through the Tzimtzum and the Rishimu, and now creates existence. And we're told, in the world of Odom Kadman, the first world, you don't yet have Kalim. Sometimes it says, the Shom is the Gufim, is like the beginning of containers. Then comes Akudim, ten energies in one container. Like the conception, think of a conception, one cell. Then that breaks into ten energies, into ten containers, the world of Nekudim. Points, toyu, but they're still chaotic and unbalanced. Then the world of Tikkun, where the Eris and Kalim become a symbiotic unit, all in harmony and coordinated, a balanced world. So the, clearly, just like a, a fetus develops from one cell, one container that splits into two and then to four and to eight and so on. So the same thing, the Kalim develop until they become a multitude of Kalim as it continues through Ishtalshlus. That's the way Chassidus explains it. So this answers all the questions here. Now, as far as the Rishima itself goes, I spoke about this a number of years ago in the, in the Chassidus Applied, I think eight, eight different episodes. You could easily find it if you search the word Rishimu in achsidusapplied.com. Because Rishima has more than just Kayach HaGvul, the Rebbe Rashab explains it has another dimension that it also contains concealed within it all the Eirein Sof as well, all the levels of Oir, of Gili. But also the Koyach which comes from the Helama Atzmi, from God's capacity not to reveal. So both the confinement is a divine power, the power to confine or to limit or to conceal, and the power to express. And the Rishima really includes all of that, which is a bigger discussion, but not so relevant to our application here. But it comes down to is that in the world in which we live, we have a body and a soul. The body is a keli, the soul is a oir. When we have ideas on paper, the ideas are the oir, the, the, the paper, the words, and the, and the letters are the kalim. Everything is eris and kalim in this world. And here we see how they come together in this 
eloquent fashion, they both have their source, but they also interact with each other. And ultimately, they work together in one balanced harmony, the Eishu the letters, and the air that's within them. And our job is to reunite them, reveal them, and reconnect them to their source, which is how we make a dira b'tachtenim. Tachtenim is kalim, material world, where, we, where the divine is concealed, but we reveal the divine within it, both the divine energy of air, but also the divine energy within the kalim themselves. And that's the total transformation of making a home for the divine, a garden in this world, Basilagani, for the Ebishtim. With that, we'll conclude this episode of My Life Chassidus Applied, episode 406. Everyone should have a very blessed week and uh, fulfilling our mission, each of us in our own way, and a very gesund and healthy summer. And we continue every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. Thank you very much and be well. This program is brought to you by My Life, Chassidus Applied. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at chassidusapply.com slash donate.